So, uh, children, you can take off and go to uh, Kids Church now. It'd be great. Uh, we're getting ready to take the offering, and want to fill you in on a couple things. Uh, all the all the resources that God provides us, He does amazing things with that. And last night, or this past week at VBS, we had 76 children here, a number of adults here. They did a great job. And and what you, how God uses your uh, provision, your resources, your finances. Uh, it, it has a, a mighty impact on so many people's lives, especially the children and, and the adults' lives were impacted as well. Last night we had our block party and uh, it was a fantastic experience. We had people from, from our immediate neighborhood here. We had Melody Park families here. We had VBS families here. We had a number of individuals here and that's possible because of the way you contribute and the way God uses your contributions to make that happen. There were two particular stories that I want to alert you to that happened last night, and, and one involved a three-year-old boy and his dad named Adrian. It was Adrian's a dad, Emilio's the son, and Emilio's three years old, and, and so we had just finished setting up, and, and all of a sudden, Adrian and Emilio walk into the parking lot, and they go up to Don Meister, and they say, what's going on here? And Don Meister says, there's a party going on, it's a block party going on, and, uh, and then they said, well, who's invited? He said, anybody in the community? And uh, uh, Adrian looks at him and says, well, we live right around the corner. And Don says, and Don Meister's way just says, well, then this party's for you. And so they came. And they had a great time. And I sat down and I was eating with them and uh, with, uh, with Adrian and his wife, Julie. And uh, as I was talking, I said, what brought you guys here? You know, why did you show up here? And Adrian looks at me and he says, well, yesterday I was out driving with my son, and uh, we went to a church and he said, this is, uh, and I'm going to mess this up uh, and I apologize, but, but he said, in essence, it's Dio's, God's church is what he said to his son. And they went into the church building and they sat down and he said, you know, this is where you pray. This is where you learn about God. And so yesterday they were driving home and they saw the bounce houses being inflated and Emilio looks at his dad or says to his dad from the back seat, he says, Dad, let's go to God's church now. <laughs> and he showed up and uh, they heard about Jesus. They had a wonderful time and, and it was great to, to meet them. And, and Children's Evangelism Fellowship has a tent that they use to, to share God's story with, with children there. And so as they're sharing the story, uh, um, Leslie Musselman, the, uh, the director, said, is anybody, would anybody like to come to know Jesus tonight or, or during this time? And none of the children raised their hand. And then this mom raises her hand and said, I'd like to know Jesus. It's because of, not just because of what you give, but because of the God who takes those resources and he changes people's lives with them. I am so, so grateful for your generosity, for your belief that God is not done with what he's trying to do and what he is doing in our lives and through our lives. Because of that, and I told you this in late January, our theme is kingdom expansion. His kingdom is expanding because of, because of and through your generosity. I am so grateful for what you do and how God is using this body to make an impact for the kingdom. And so the ushers are going to come forward. I'm going to pray, and we're going to uh, respond. Father, we thank you so very much for the work that you do in VBS, for the work that you did at the block party for 
the way that you take these gifts, these offerings, and Lord, I guess you're really not taking them, you're using them. And you've already provided for us. And, and Lord, we pray as we respond to that, to what you've given to us, we pray that as we respond that you would take these gifts and, and use them to expand your kingdom that you would continue to touch, touch lives like Adrian and Emilio and, and their family, touch this woman's life who gave her life to, to you last night, and that you would touch each one of our lives, that we would continue to be awestruck by your amazing grace, by your generous love. May we never forget that. So Lord, use these gifts for the advancement of your kingdom so that all may come to know you and place their trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. He is, he's awesome. He's great. Our souls should sing out how great he is all the time. And, and earlier this morning, I had the privilege of uh, going down and preaching at the prison where I teach every Wednesday. And uh, they sang Amazing Grace. And to hear 250 men just boom that song out, it, uh, it gets to you. The, the, uh, the grace of our God is truly phenomenal. And as I shared with them, the message, I continued to be hit by the simple fact that God's changing lives there, just as he's changing lives here, and I'm grateful for that, and it's because of God's grace that that change happens. When I was in eighth grade, I was in love with this girl by the name of Lisa, and it was yearbook time, and, uh, and so yearbooks came out, and back in that day, you exchanged yearbooks, and you put in these little messages and things like that. Anybody else do that? Okay, yeah, so, okay, so I was thinking, I mean, so I'm not the only person that did that, so that's good to know, but so we're changing these things, and I give mine to Lisa, and I liked her a lot, let's just leave it at that, but I don't even know if Lisa knew I existed, really. 
So I handed her my yearbook, and she handed me hers, and I wrote this beautiful poem, I'm sure. No, I'm just joking. But, but uh, she wrote in my yearbook, and I'll never forget this. She wrote, John, please don't ever change. And, I re- and she had written some other stuff, but please don't ever change. And I'm thinking, you don't like me. If I don't change, you're never going to like me. So maybe this is a nonverbal way of saying, please don't change because I don't ever want to like you. I don't know. But she said, please don't change. And as I've been thinking about this message today, and we talk about the reach of God's grace, it's impossible for change to not happen. Thank God I'm no longer like the person I was in eighth grade. I mean, now granted, I had more hair back then. And I was a little shorter, I think, not quite as charming, but, uh, but I was, it was me. I was an eighth grader. And some people enjoy change. Some people enjoy the process of change. And, and it strikes me as interesting that when people say, well, I really like change, they're some of the first people I notice who get upset when there's road construction, but yet they're changing the road to make it better. That's a good change. Why are you upset? Change makes us uneasy. It causes us to reevaluate what's going on in our lives. And so Paul saw change not as an inconvenience, but as an opportunity. Because he knew as the grace of God continued to sink into, in, deeply into his life, he knew that change was going to happen. We see that happen in Galatians chapter 1. I invite you to turn there now in Galatians 1. We're going to start at verse 11. And Paul writes these words. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him to, among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Then later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Father, we pray now as we look into your word, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes that we can see your grace and how it changes people. We ask that you would open our ears so that we can hear that message of grace that we desperately need to hear. We pray that you would open our minds so that we can understand more and more how far your reach 
how far your grace reaches and how it transforms us. And that, we would, that you would open our hearts so that we can receive from you that transforming work of your grace so that we can become more and more like the people you desire us to be. Lord, I pray that no one would hear anything I say, but that your Holy Spirit would open their ears to what it is that you want them to hear and need them to hear. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would receive all glory and that you would continue to do great work among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Gracelessness is recklessness. If you decide to live without grace, you are going to be living a reckless life. And we'll get there in just a few moments, but I want to address a couple things that, that Paul brings up in verses 11 and 12. He says this, I want you to know that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I think that's important for us to understand. This gospel that he's preaching is not some made-up story. Humanity has made up a lot of great stories, a lot of great stories. But there is no story greater than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That gospel that has Jesus Christ saving humanity through his death and resurrection. There is no greater story ever written. And it's not just simply a story, it's true. It really happened. Jesus Christ came to save us from certain eternal separation from God. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is that so often in life, there are people that write us off. We make a mistake and we get written off. We've all been there. People have written us off. But what I want you to realize and what I want all of us to realize is that God never writes anyone off. He does not quit writing. God keeps writing to finish the rest of the story. Wherever you are in life right now, the gospel comes in and says, I'm not done with you yet. You might think that you're done. You might think that people have written you off, but I am God Almighty, and I have provided the gospel, and this story will not stop. I'm going to keep working in you. Paul wants us to understand that this gospel is not something that humanity made up. It is something that God created. It's something that God sustains. It's something that God continues to use to transform people's lives. And then he points this out, and he says this in verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. Paul's life before the Damascus Road experience that we looked at a few weeks ago, Paul's life before that experience was nothing but gracelessness. He wanted more and more and more and more. He was that student, and, and notice what he says here, I intensely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. Paul was that student in your class who always had the best grade. He was that student in your class who not only had the best grade, but he could be counted on, he or she could be counted on to provide the right answer and also the, and also the ability to teach others the right way. Paul also was the student that every other student looked around in their class and said, he's in a league of his own. There's no one like him. In essence, Paul was desiring to be the greatest Jew of all time. 
bar none. I'm a sports person. He was the Michael Jordan of Jews. He was great. He was beyond comparison, right? That's the way he operated. But notice what he says here. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own, beyond many of my own age. The Greek word there is, is a word that says mow down. Paul was mowing people down in his quest to become the greatest Jew of all time. He was mowing them down, and and Paul wasn't simply a bull in a china shop. Paul was a bulldozer in a china shop, leveling anyone and anything that got in his way of becoming the greatest Jew possible. Because he was advancing, because he was at the head of his class, it made Paul a Pharisee. And so often we think the Pharisees are really bad people, and we wouldn't want to have anything to do with them, yet we have to be really careful with that. Because the Pharisees looked really good. They were respectable people. Now granted, Jesus Christ called them on it. But these were people that, that understood God's word. At least they thought they understood God's word. To become a Pharisee, it meant the following. That you accept the, word, the written word of God as inspired by God. Back in Paul's day, that would be the Old Testament. You trusted that that was what God's word was, and that's what God's word is. You believed it was inspired by God. The second thing was this, was that you gave equal authority to oral tradition. Now, this is where they sort of started to make some mistakes. In essence, what they were saying was, what I say about God's word and how I interpret God's word is just as important as what God's word actually says. So here's God's word, here's their opinion of God's word, and they said, they are equal. Quick caveat, a quick tangent. You have opinions about God's word, I have opinions about God's word. But those opinions always are submissive to God's word. God's word is the authority. If my opinion about God's word does not line up with God's word, then you know what? My opinion doesn't win, God's word wins. There are plenty of people that want to say, well, God's word means this, God's word means that, but yet it's inconsistent with what God's word actually says. The Pharisees dealt with that inconsistency by saying, well, that's just the way it is. My opinion matters. My opinion is just as important as anything else. They also believed this, that God controls all things. We're okay with that. And they added this part into it, yet they believed that individuals still had freedom to make decisions. So God's sovereignty there's still, still free will. They were, we're okay with that. They also believe that there will be a resurrection of the dead. They believe that the afterlife involves punishing the unrighteous, rewarding the righteous. They believe in angels and demons. And one of the biggest accomplishments that the Pharisees achieved was creating a document called the Mishnah. What is the Mishnah? When the, when the temple was destroyed, Judaism was in trouble because it was so temple-centric. The Mishnah provided guidelines for the Jews on how they are to conduct their their lives. This was a huge thing to keep Judaism moving forward, to keep Judaism advancing. The Pharisees wrote that. And then there was one other item that was essential for Pharisees to do to become a Pharisee. Of the 613 different laws that are found in the Old Testament, 248 of them are positive, 365 of them are negative. A Pharisee had 
every single one not only memorized, but they could interpret its application. Now, you've taken tests, I've taken tests. I've never been asked to memorize 613 things and then properly interpret them. To be a Pharisee meant that you put yourself through all of this stuff, and at the end of the day, how could you not respect these people? They were incredibly diligent, and that's what Paul was doing. Paul was advancing. He was mowing people over to advance. Are you mowing people over to advance? Are you looking at people not as people, but as objects that are in your way of getting what you want? Because gracelessness leads to recklessness. And when we're operating without grace, we mow people over and we don't care. Are you doing that? Are there people in your life who are doing that? So not only was Paul mowing people down, but he also points this out. The reason why he was mowing people down was he was persecuting the church of God and trying to destroy it. Try and wrap your head around that. God's been on the move for a really long time, and Paul was single-handedly going to destroy God's work. He believed so much in what Judaism stood for that he was going to destroy the church because all of a sudden this Jesus movement happens and people are flocking to it and the church continues to expand, and Paul says, we cannot allow this to continue on. I invite you to turn back a few pages in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, and perhaps Paul could have used some career counseling advice. And it comes from a person who knew Paul rather well. So let me set the context for you. The apostles are continuing to do wonderful things. They're continuing, God's using them to heal people, to, uh, to, to get people involved in, in God's movement and, and how he's setting people free by his grace. These apostles get thrown in prison and then God releases them from prison and here's the rest of the story. We pick it up in Acts 5, verse 25. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. The high priest is not a happy camper right now. 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, and I love this statement, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. So the high priest is saying, You need to knock it off. And Peter's response is, You killed this. You killed Jesus. And then he says this, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they, the high priests and, and the Sanhedrin, were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, I want to stop there. Gamaliel, 
was Paul's teacher. You're going to hear about Gamaliel next week. He was Paul's teacher. He was an expert in the law. He knew the law inside, outside, upside, down, right, left, forwards, backwards. He knew it entirely. Gamaliel understands the law. Paul's talking about advancing in Judaism far better than anyone else, mowing people over, and he understands that law so important. And Gamaliel was his teacher. And you wish Gamaliel would have seen Paul before Paul was doing what he was doing. He says this, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you, are, what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Paul was on a mission to destroy the church of God. According to Gamaliel, Paul is fighting God himself. Trying to go against God is always futile. Now, I've been around long enough to know this, that all of us in this room right now at one time or another, or perhaps even right now, have tried fighting against God. He's provided opportunities for us to forgive one another, and we just said, I'm not going to forgive him, and God keeps coming at you. He provides opportunities for us to serve, and we say, ah, I'm not going to serve, I'm not into that, I really don't need to do that, and God keeps providing opportunities to serve. He, he, we, we get built up thinking that the world revolves all around us. We get filled with pride thinking that it's all about us. And God keeps doing things to keep us humble. We fight against him so much. We expend so much energy in fighting against him. And one of the things that I've learned is this, is that God is big enough to let me fight him. He doesn't tremble in his shoes when John Bosick decides to fight against God. I know that's shocking, but he doesn't tremble. Just says, if you want to keep fighting, we can keep fighting. We can keep going back and forth on this. But one of the things that I've learned over the years is this, is that he's the only one that's going to be standing at the end of the fight. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not John Bosick is Lord. But my conclusion is, 
Why do I keep fighting when it's futile? Why don't I simply accept the fact I need to forgive? Why don't I accept the fact that I need to serve? Why don't I accept the fact that God's grace is on the move and I need to submit to him? Why do I keep fighting rather than just simply saying, you win? I know I'm not the only one that fights with God. And perhaps you're here this morning fighting with God. I'm here to tell you right now, he'll let you fight him. He'll let you go toe-to-toe with him. But in the end, God wins. God wins because he cares more about you than you do about yourself. His grace is bigger than you are. And so the end of the service we always have this time of prayer and if if you uh, time of prayer over here jesus and and other folks sometimes gather over there if you have something that you're fighting with god about and you need prayer join us over there we'll be praying for you about that so i ask you in what areas are you trying to to go against god and then i ask you this will you let god's grace win will you let god's grace win because that's what happens look what happens here in verse 15 So he says all this, that he was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And then he says this, but when God, it's the three-letter word of grace. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult with any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Grace is a five letter word, yet it always involves a three letter word, which is but. Paul's life was heading down this path of I'm going to destroy the church of God. I'm going to persecute people. I'm going to take them out. But God comes in and says, you're not going that direction anymore. Grace is a five-letter word, but it always involves a three-letter word, but. Grace always, always involves the word, but. I was having issues with a coworker at work the other day, but the grace of God gave me wisdom to get that situation resolved. I was tempted to cheat on a test, but God's grace reminded me that he's with me even when the consequences are not going to be good. I was a person who had no purpose in life, but God's grace opened my eyes in my life and showed me that my purpose was to help others see him in my life and through my life. I wanted to get even with somebody who hurt me, but God's grace helped me forgive that person. But God's grace, when it gets involved, things happen. The list goes on and on. You've experienced God's grace changing the course of your life. You were heading one way, but the grace of God intervenes and says, you're going this way. That's what happens here in verse 15. Paul's heading down a certain path of destruction, but God's grace comes in and rescues him. Sin will take you in this direction. It will mess up your life. It will hurt you. It will hurt others. But God's grace comes in and says, you are forgiven and set free. Sin goes far, but God's grace always goes further. 
There is no sin that you've committed that God's grace cannot reach. There is no depth of depravity that God's grace can't go underneath and say, I'm going to pick you up. His grace is that great. And the reach of that grace is amazing. And Paul says this, he was pleased to reveal his son. Grace is something God is pleased to give. He doesn't sit there grudgingly say, well, I need to show grace to the people today. This is a drag. No, God says, I want to show grace. I get to show grace. I enjoy showing grace. He's never annoyed with you. He says, I'm going to give you grace. I care about you that much. And he says, but when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. In your Bibles, go all the way back to Jeremiah and notice a little connection here. So we go all the way back to Jeremiah chapter 1. By the way, Jeremiah's longest book in the Bible. There's a Bible trivia question for you. That's extra bonus coverage for you today. Some people say the Psalms, laugh in their face and say, it's Jeremiah. I know because my pastor told me. Okay, so but it's true. Jeremiah's the longest book in the Bible. So here we go. Jeremiah chapter 1. Notice what the prophet Jeremiah says, or God's word says to Jeremiah. The word of Yahweh came to me saying, before I formed you, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Paul is the prophet now to the Gentiles. Paul says this in verse 15, that God was pleased to set him apart and, and to use him. What Paul's doing here, remember we've got this false, this false teachers going on, spreading all types of, of garbage about Paul and about his message. Paul's saying, listen, the message I'm teaching is a message that has been going on for centuries, it's why he connects back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah goes out and, and proclaims who God is to the people. Paul is tying into that tradition saying, that's what I'm called to do. God is going to do great things in my life. And as that grace continues, it changes all aspects of our lives. It changed the way Paul lived his life. It changed everything about him. It changed the way he interacted with people. It changed the way he viewed God. It changed the way he lived his life entirely. Paul was heading in this direction, but the grace of God captured him and said, this is where you're going. This morning, you could be heading in one direction, but the grace of God wants to come in and say, I want to set you free. I want to help you through this. So God's grace is truly amazing, and God's grace has a destination. Let's look at verses 21 to 24. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. Real quickly, before I talk about those verses, you'll notice that Paul says, I consulted no other person. So Rob and I were talking about this week. So often when a person comes to know Jesus Christ, we want to, to train them up. We, we have a responsibility to disciple them. We have a responsibility to mentor them, get involved in their lives. And Paul seems to just say, I'm not doing that. 
Part of the reason why he says this is because he wants the people to know that his message was a direct revelation from Jesus Christ. It was confirmed by his teaching that he was doing. It was confirmed by the apostles later on that it was accurate. So I'm not saying that building relationships with other people isn't important. What I'm saying is, is that Paul is dealing with some people that are trying to accuse him of things that are not true. And so Paul does this, and then he goes and he travels, and there's a destination of grace, and grace always travels well. It always travels well. He tells us that he goes back, and I, I'm sorry I skipped over this, in verse 17 he says, later I returned to Damascus. Let's think about what that must have been like. Where was Paul heading when Jesus Christ intercepted his life? Damascus. What was he going there to go do? Destroy the church. And now Paul goes back to the very place where it all began. The toughest mission field for you, for me, is people from our past. Your hometown. For some of you, your family. Your life before Christ, and all of a sudden Jesus rescues your life by His grace, and you're living life here, and then an opportunity presents itself to go back and interact with those people. That's a tough mission field. This upcoming week, Don and I are going back to Kansas City to see my folks, and there's a chance, a, a slight chance, that I'm going to see people that, that, I, that I hung out with in high school. I'm not the same person today as I was then. Thank God. But the interactions there are going to be a little different. Folks, grace travels. God's grace travels. And not only does it travel, he says, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard. Let's stop there. Grace not only travels, grace also speaks. They had no idea who this Paul was. He was in uncharted territory, but all they knew was that they were hearing something spoken that was changing people's lives. His grace speaks into any and every situation, and this is what they were saying. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Did you see what the people observed? The people observed the faith. They didn't say he's preaching faith. They didn't say he's preaching a faith. They said he is preaching the very faith that he once tried to destroy. The faith. Not a faith, not faith, but the faith. He was preaching the faith that gave sight to the blind. He's preaching the faith that made Peter walk on water. He was preaching the faith that made a father turn to Jesus and say about his son, please rescue my son. He's preaching about a faith that moved four friends to dig through a roof of a stranger's house, lower their paralyzed friend through that hole, place him at the feet of Jesus, and because of their faith, it brought healing to their friend. He's preaching the faith, the faith that only needs to be the size of a mustard seed to move a mountain. He's preaching about the faith that spoke into Lazarus' tomb and Lazarus walked out. 
He's preaching about the faith that put a man on a cross, put him in a tomb, and on the third day, that man, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead. That's the faith that Paul is proclaiming. And that's the faith that changes people's lives. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Are you proclaiming the faith? Or are you proclaiming just whatever you need to do to get by? When we proclaim the faith, things change because God's grace changes people. His grace travels, His grace speaks, and His grace always results in praise. Verse 24, and they praised God because of me. It speaks, it travels, and God's grace produces praise. They praise God because of me. You read this verse, and it convicts me at times. I want to ask you this question. When you interact with people, and they walk away after that interaction, do they say, praise the Lord for what you're doing in that person's life? Or do they say, that person needs the Lord in their life. They need God's grace in their life. How do people react to you after you've interacted with them? For Paul, people sang or said words of praise. So what do they say? Are you conducting yourself in a way that God's grace is so evident in your life that people say, praise the Lord? Or are you conducting yourself in such a way where people say, Lord, get them out of my life? What impact are you making? Paul understood God's grace in such a way that people couldn't help but sing praise. How far does God's grace reach? It reaches further into any situation than you will ever find yourself. How far does God's grace reach? It reaches further than the damage your sinfulness has brought to your life and those around you. How far does God's grace reach? It reaches into the bitterness you harbor towards one another and, place, and replaces it with a desire to forgive that person. How far does God's grace reach? It reaches into the dark places of your life and says that those dark places are going to be illuminated by God's grace and set you free. How far does God's grace reach? It transforms death into life. That's God's grace. That's what Paul's preaching about. And because of that, lives were changed forever. Paul's life was changed, and because of that change, other people's lives were changed. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that your life being changed by the grace of God is the greatest testimony you will ever have. What is he doing in your life? that moves people to say, wow, look at what God is doing. I need to know him. That's all Paul's saying here. He's saying, you don't believe that God's grace changes people's lives? Look at my life 
And I will say, His grace changes lives. How has God's grace changed your life? Do people see that? If they don't see it, ask God to help you. Ask God to work His grace in the midst of your life to set you free so that people can see Him. Father, we pray now. We thank You for that grace. That grace that You're pleased to give. That grace that travels. That grace that speaks. That grace that involves involves that three-letter word but we were heading in a direction of of doubt we were heading in a direction of of aimlessness but your grace came in and gave us certainty that you care for us gave us that peace that surpasses understanding we thank you for being the God who gives grace in abundance and that you enjoy giving that grace and I pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to move in our midst I pray for those that are in this room right now who are struggling to believe that your grace can set them free. I would ask that your Holy Spirit would move them to a place of realizing that fighting with you is futile and that you truly have their best ideas, their best plans in mind. Set people free, Lord. Set all of us free by your amazing grace. We love you and we thank you for your grace that is truly not only amazing, but is always, always life-changing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'm gonna ask the worship leader, not the band, I'm gonna ask the worship leader to come up and uh, we get to sing a couple more songs. I invite you to stand. Let's sing out with great, great zest and passion about this amazing grace that God has. So please stand.